Welcome back to another episode of A Dark Tale. I am your host, Joe, and with me back again is James. Thanks for coming back, James. Always a pleasure. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me back after my long-awaited absence. <laughs> I want to start off by uh, thanking a few people. I want to thank Laura all the way out in Cambridge, Minnesota, for her generous donation on the website. It was one of the first... Thank you, Laura. It's much appreciated. And I think James has a few people he'd like to thank. Yeah. On that note, Matt, too, who also donated. Really, I really appreciate that, Matt. We appreciate the support. Thanks a lot, yeah. Matt. Congratulations to you and Claire on the engagement, too. Congratulations, guys. Best of luck to you guys. Woo! For me, I just really want to throw a quick shout out and thank you to Danielle, Eric, and Laura. They've been listening since the beginning, and they continue to give me really good feedback and a lot of good support. So uh, I probably wouldn't be able to do it without them at my back. Yeah, and uh, a friend I may have mentioned before of mine, he's always uh, he's always supporting me and giving me the uh, same continuous feedback since since day one. My friend Neil, Northeast Neil, he calls himself, <laughs> and uh, everyone else who's downloaded so far, and of course any new listeners that may be joining us for the first time welcome thank you for listening and sharing we just reached 50,000 downloads in our first year and i think uh, it's something to be proud of yeah that ain't too shabby yeah and it's it's, it's been rough these last these last couple of weeks we know everybody's uh, having a tough time and uh, james especially I, you've been uh, in a little bit of a self quarantine these last couple of days, especially. I'm I'm doing okay though. Yeah, I'm I'm doing all right. Um, just to quarantine for a few days, and then I'm actually going to be able to get back to work. So that's a lot better than most people can say. So I really hope everybody's doing their best to say uh, stay safe and you know just um yeah just do their best. Yeah, our th- our thoughts are with everybody in this tough time, and uh, just you know do your part to to help out. It's a tough time right now for everybody. So we hope everybody's staying safe. But let's get into tonight's case. Tonight is a little bit of a a famous story, something that is a bit more sensationalized than anything I'm talking about is uh, the case in Amityville, New York. Case everybody knows as the Amityville Horror. This is uh, what we'll be referring to tonight as the DeFeo Murders. There are very few small towns in the United States that are labeled as infamous. However, simply invoking the name of the affluent little village on Long Island in our tale tonight springs thoughts of nightmares, both real and supernatural. 112 Ocean Avenue has been the setting for murder, legends, and myths for nearly half a century. What happened there on November 13, 1974, and the ensuing events in the years to follow, is a sobering reminder that evil could be anywhere, and strike at at any time. This is the true story of the Amityville Horror. First this bulletin from the WOR newsroom. Six members of one family have been found shot to death in their night clothes in their expensive home in Amityville, Long Island. The only available information at this moment, according to the Amityville Village Police, is that the, mem- the victims have been identified as members of the DeFeo family. They were found by a 23-year-old son, Ronald DeFeo, who is believed to be 
the only surviving member of the family. Six members of the family found shot to death in their home in Amityville, Long Island. We will have further details on the 11 o'clock news. In a nutshell, the true story is that in one night an entire family was killed under mysterious circumstances. One family, six victims, all of them had names. John Matthew DeFeo, he was the youngest child, he was nine years old. Mark Gregory, he was 12 years old. Allison Louise DeFeo, she was the youngest daughter at 13 years old. Dawn Teresa DeFeo, the oldest daughter, she was 18 years old. Louise Marie Brigante DeFeo, mother of the DeFeo family and wife of Ronald DeFeo Sr. She was 43 years old. Ronald Joseph DeFeo Sr., patriarch of the DeFeo family and husband of Louis DeFeo. He was 44 years old. As hard as I tried, I actually couldn't find too much on the victims themselves about their lives or their interests or anything like that. Um... It seems like everything is lost under layers of the legends and myth and fiction that um, it's like their real lives are entirely lost. But what we do know most about is the relationship between Ron DeFeo Sr., the father, and his son, who we're going to call Butch because they're both named Ron. So just out of convenience sake. So nobody gets confused, and we know who we're talking about. Now, Ron and Butch, they have a somewhat abrasive relationship. Uh, Butch is a, about as a deadbeat as you can get at the time of the murders take, when the time of the murders take place. Ron Sr. owns a fairly successful local car, car dealership, and... Um, Gives Butch a management position, but he rarely shows up and is more in tune to um, drinking and getting high. He had a pretty stable heroin habit, and um, his parents, for some reason or another, felt it was best to feed into his addictions and kind of you know, uh, become enablers, as it were, buying him expensive gifts. Like, at one point, I think they bought him a speedboat. They had a troubled kid and figured the more money and support they gave him, the better off he'd be. That's the best way of summarizing their logic, I think. But that never really helped out any of the situation because... I think uh, Butch would just blow all the money on alcohol and drugs and had a pretty notorious reputation around the neighborhood and um, had a, a pretty good relationship with the police. And when I say pretty good, I mean they knew him for the deadbeat that he was and ended up in the backseat of their car a lot of the time. So he wasn't too... Um, bashful, I guess you could say, about his uh, his hard partying ways. And 
had a bad reputation and his father didn't like that and what father would i mean <laughs> your son is basically a a junkie and a drunk and you're trying to do everything you think is right but in the end it just doesn't work and that uh pretty Talk much more. sums up about the about as much as we could find as far as a family history yeah so the fact that they continued to give him all the support and he continued to waste it and his life um, created a lot of friction, especially between his father and himself. Yeah, he had a lot of opportunity. I mean, given his father's position in the community, um, the the parents themselves were very well liked. And because of that, uh, that's probably one reason why the DeFeo's dealership did so well and uh, was so successful. Because if you look at pictures of 112 Ocean Avenue, it's a beautiful property. It sits right on the water. It has a boathouse. It has um, plenty of property to, uh, to run around and play on with, the, with a lot of kids that they had. And... Um, you know, it was perfect to raise a family in. And, um, so, so how bad did it get between Butch and his dad? Well, at some point they were, um, you know, there's, there, there's always going, they're always going back and forth. And at some point there was an argument so bad to the point where, uh, Butch pulled a gun on his father and, um, he actually threatened to kill him and went as far as pulling the trigger. However, it was an unloaded gun. It was a loaded gun. The gun was loaded. Yeah. In fact, it was a loaded shotgun. And um, lucky for Ron Sr., uh, the gun malfunctioned and he lived. I don't know about 1970s, but I believe that could be enough to try somebody for attempted murder. Absolutely. Yeah, in the 1970s, yeah, sure. But I think his father maybe didn't have it in his heart to to take it that far at the time and maybe thought it was just an argument that they could get over. And But I'll tell you this much, it was enough to turn him into a man of God because apparently Ron Sr. was a bit of an abusive man when it came to his wife and uh, some of his kids. There's... I, I found some some reports of him being abusive to his kids and uh, definitely verbally, if not physical, abusive with his wife. And so after this malfunction of the shotgun incident, apparently Ron Sr. turned to God and um, changed his ways. He just completely changed his ways? I wonder what that actually means, because when you say he was abusive, I I truly feel that meant something different in the 1970s. I Well, that's like I said, because... Yeah, like abusive I couldn't by find a whole lot of information. Their standards. Yeah, that's what you have to look at. But I couldn't find a whole lot of details on what we're saying is, is abuse. So, like you're saying, is it by today's standards or 1970s standards of abuse. And that's not to say 
oh, we've gone soft and we we classify everything as abuse. No, just that we know more about um, maladaptive when behavior. When you have a fa- yeah, when you have a father that you know takes a belt to his kids every night because you know he he's just he's just a piece of shit well, or he's a drunk or whatever. That, or that's just how he learned. It was just a different you know time. At this point, a yeah. hundred years ago. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know how to articulate this better. I mean, than I'm I can. Just, well, you know, it's just one of those things. It's like, yeah, it's like uh, these these things in our generations have ripples, and that's a whole other discussion one day. But, but I wonder how bad it got for them for him to pull the trigger on him. Well, it must have been a pretty serious argument at the time, but. Um... I'm sure Butch was under the influence of something. Like we said, or like I said, he had a pretty extensive heroin addiction. Right. And in the early 70s, the late 70s, really the entire decade, um, for someone like Butch with his family's financial security, it was easy for him to drive from Amityville to uh, the... uh, the center of of heroin in the seventies, Harlem. It's about an hour's drive from Amityville, and uh, with his means, his parents giving him money, and he his pockets weren't empty. So he he always had the means to get there and to score. Um, almost positive. That's a good point because once somebody is so heavily addicted to hard drugs, honestly, a lot of reasoning and um justification for why they might do anything kind of goes out the window all these small incidents the drug addictions the drinking the bad reputation in his neighborhood, the overall friction between Butch and his father, pulling the gun, pulling the trigger, and it not firing, but the act of pulling the trigger. All this is tantamount to the events that took place on November 13th, 1974. I say this because the murders are almost always glossed over as an afterthought of the house itself. At around 3.15 a.m. on November 13th, Butch DeFeo had awoken, and for reasons that still remain unclear, he took a 35 caliber Marlin rifle and systematically shot all six members of his family. The creepiest thing about the murders is that all six members lay face down in their beds as if they were sleeping, shot in the back, execution style. So I guess the question is, how did that happen? Because all we have is an unreliable narrator to tell us. So this is where it gets tricky. 
because we have evidence that doesn't exactly add up and we have one witness who himself is an unreliable narrator. Unreliable in the sense that Butch mostly changes his story on multiple occasions and over the course of time. From the initial time of his arrest and throughout the time of his incarceration, stories have changed. My father was my best friend in uh, many, many ways. No matter what I did, and uh, the truth of the matter is most of the time I was always wrong. I was always in trouble. No matter what I did, he was always there for me to bail me out. The problem was Ronald DeFeo Sr., my father. He's the cause of all of this. The only way to get rid of him, he's got to go back to hell. I lived in that house all those years. I've never saw anything really peculiar or strange, never once. There was nothing but bad in that house. I was going to burn it to the ground. That's the truth. I was going to burn it to the ground. I just pray to God it don't happen to nobody else. That's why I told you. Anybody buys that house and got kids and move in there, come on, man. You got to be, you really got to be. Something wrong with you. It was mass confusion. My sister shoots my mother. But all I see is a flash, so I swing the gun over and fire a shinoli shot. Now I shot my mother. I didn't know what the hell was going on. This is mass confusion in this bedroom. Mass confusion. Initially, on the first day, he tells authorities that uh, it was a mob hit. He came, he opened the door, and he was screaming, come on, help me. Somebody shot my mother and father. And everyone ran out of the bar, and that was it. They all, took off. they all jumped in his car and took off. Today, police combed the DeFeo's handsome three-story house for clues while divers explored the backyard swimming pool for the still-unfound murder weapon. Police have been questioning the son, Ronald, and now say he is being, quote, safeguarded. Investigators say without explanation that they now feel young DeFeo was in the house at the time of the murders, but they're not yet considering him a suspect. And then 24 hours later, he confesses to the murders. Morning, DeFeo appeared for arraignment at the first district court in Hophog, where he was ordered held without bail. As his standard practice in a multiple murder case, he was arraigned in only one of the killings, that of his 12-year-old brother, Mark. The court agreed to let a physician treat DeFeo for injuries to his face, but it refused to allow a psychiatric examination for him, which had been requested by the defense attorney. For well, based upon my uh, conversations this morning with the defendant, uh, Ronald DeFeo, and... Uh, based upon the nature of the charge and that he's alleged to have taken the lives of six members of his family, uh, in my opinion, I uh, don't think he presently understands the uh, nature of the proceedings and I don't think he can therefore properly assist in his defense. Then later, after he's convicted, he tells in multiple interviews that he never had uh, uh, any kind of problems with his father. They got along great. Yeah, they argued here and there, and it was Dawn that planned the whole thing, and he took part, left, came back later, and there's just a multitude of different things he said over the years that proves that he's a totally unreliable witness. Unfortunately, he's the sole witness. But the details of that night are strange, though, aren't they? Because 
something that can be connected for, to what the he details said. Details are strange because the locations of the six bodies strongly suggested DeFeo could not have committed the shootings so rapidly in the fact that nobody had time to react. The house is very large, and DeFeo had fired a total of eight shots with a rifle inside a home, estimated to be at somewhere around 140 decibels each, in four different rooms of a sprawling house across two different floors. And yet, with the first two fired shots being at his parents, no one else seemed to be disturbed and he had time to work his way throughout the house. So the story that the evidence tells us is that a man walked throughout his house and then fired a rifle into his family one by one, going room by room, all without them waking up or getting out of bed. That's the court's decision, yes. Very eerie. Also, no neighbors had heard any shots. 112 Ocean Avenue was not an isolated property, despite its sprawling landscape. And um, they had neighbors surrounded relatively closely by other homes. And when police interviewed these residents, nobody had reported anything about loud noises other than a barking dog, which the Tefeo family kept outside. What kind of rifle was it? A thirty-five Marlin. So this is actually one of these rifles that you have to shoot and then pull a lever down to reload for the next shot. Yeah, correct? lever action rifle. This is yeah. what we're looking at. Yeah. So it actually takes a minute in between shots. So not only are you shooting. Figure shoot, reload, it has to take at least three full seconds if you're doing it quickly. That is a loud gun to operate. It's a loud gun to operate is exactly my point. Yeah. Dr. Howard Adelman, he was the deputy chief medical examiner of Suffolk County and was present at the crime scene. He personally conducted the autopsies on the entire DeFeo family. He testified at trial that he felt it was impossible that one person could have committed these crimes. However, the court still found that Butch had acted alone. Now, several investigators have varying theories, as well as a few authors. They have suggested that Butch DeFeo's oldest sister, Dawn, had played some sort of role in the shootings and... Butch has even mentioned this in one of his confessions, many confessions himself. Now, the first five victims were on the second floor of the DeFeo house. Ronald Sr. and Luis DeFeo were both shot twice in the master bedroom. Now, I couldn't find if it was twice each or once per person for a total of two shots. I just have twice, shot twice in the master bedroom. Moving across the other side of the house, the gunmen or gun persons 
then shot the two boys, Mark and John. Then, completing the second floor shootings, 13-year-old Allison DeFeo was shot once in the head. Now, that's a total of seven shots right there at 140 decibels average, give or take, each seven shots. After which, the gunman started to ascend the stairs to Don DeFeo's third floor bedroom. So the gunman had to not only fire seven shots, he then had to climb a set of steps to get to Dawn's room. And it's, it's got to be pretty inconceivable to think that one person at the top of the house didn't hear anything at all, let alone someone coming up the steps to their bedroom. Yeah, that doesn't track with me. Now, had Dawn, as some suspected, actually participated in the shooting herself, only then would she have been shot by her brother after the fact and then placed in her bed. The evidence to support this theory does exist because the blood spatter pattern on the headboard and... um. I believe the wall is right there. It's either a wall or a window. But the blood spatter pattern that goes across the two doesn't coincide with the way Dawn was laying when she was found. It looks like she was killed somewhere else and moved. There also was said to be blood on her, I believe it was her doorway and hallway leading into her room. So at the very least, we know that one body had been moved, being Dawn, Dawn's body. We don't possibly not. I possibly we don't know for certain because I don't think it was determined one way or the other way. We don't know for certain anything about this night. To be honest, this is a strange. This is why it's kind of like one exactly. of exactly. To be honest, yeah. That's, I, another point was that she had suffered a huge head wound, and uh, you know there was. There was brain matter and blood on her pillow as well as her clothes, but the headboard was was pristine. It was clean, so I had it backwards. It was the lack of blood splatter on on the uh, the headboard that was strongly indicative that she had been killed somewhere else. So I kind of mixed that up there. I apologize. So what what were we left with? I mean, we were told... You know, he was held in protective custody for because it was a mob hit. But then shortly after that, he confessed, right? And is that what they kind of nailed him with? Did they did they pin it on the confession? Yeah, they used, they used that confession because that was the only thing he said at the time was that he used that, that he was by himself. He was drunk or he was high. And once he started, he couldn't stop. Yeah. And then it was later that he mentioned his sister. So it was a family annihilation and uh, one with weird details and changing stories. And um, and then it was the, the family that moved into that house afterwards that kind of amplified that, huh? Yeah, the whole thing with the Lutz family really spewed this thing into the spotlight and... It was everything else that they uh, kind of sensationalized that really 
made this story famous and it was kind of turned into their story rather than the DeFeo story. And, um, from there we, uh, we find, you know, that, I mean, did you want to go into details about the whole, the Lutz thing book and movie? You don't have to go too far. Just the fact that, you know, they're, they're, they're sensational. They, They were kind of bank. I don't know what they were doing, but, you know, they were telling stories and there's weird details that are that are that leave blanks as to what happened that night and that's kind of where these stories kind of get inflated. People already find a story like this interesting, like um when somebody kind of kills off their whole family. That's kind of a big deal. People talk yeah. about that sort of thing. Absolutely. And yeah, when you when you add sensationalism to the mix and, you know, Native American burial grounds and stuff yeah, like that. And the seventies uh, had a lot turns, more of that low devil there was a lot more credence to devil worship and demons exactly. and things like that. And in all honesty, I think it was like one drunk night they had with their lawyer or some other person. George and Kathy Lutz, you know, had some wine with somebody and they just thought up an idea for, for a book. And that's kind of where the idea took off. And the book was written, the movie was made and the story was told. Yeah. There was, there was like the, the photograph of the kid or something. And I don't know, it's, it, that stuff always seemed kind of lame. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the, uh, the the Warrens, Ed and Lorraine Warren, they actually were called in to, you know, do their thing at the Amityville house. And yeah, the picture you mentioned it it shows a like an eight year old kid in a room. It's a black and white photo, and it's overlooking a banister of a staircase, I'm guessing, going up to the third floor. And it's a ghostly looking picture because the kid's eyes look totally white and it's actually kind of like a faded image and he's standing behind the doorway and it just looks creepy. It's it's just a famous photograph. I think if you Google at this point, demonic kid photograph, like that is the one that shows Amityville, up. Like you yeah. don't even have to put in Amityville. I think demonic child photograph, like that, that literally <laughs> is the thing that comes up. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just a, sta- it's pretty standard, you know, it's, um, it's just a it, ex- double exposed photograph. His eyes are kind of glowing, maybe from a flash. There's a lot of things that aren't paranormal about that picture. The folklore was that that was one of the original murder victims i believe it thought to be the youngest john mark i believe yeah it it turned out to be one of the lutz's the lutz's kids Mm -hmm. or one of the warren's kids you know it was somebody kid at the time and so uh, the whole true crime actually gets lost in a lot of the uh, hollywood yeah, which is a shame so, because an entire family was wiped out 
over the course of a night, which is which is way. I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> that's terrible. That's just uh, that's like a tragedy in itself. Something that should be remembered. Yeah, it follows a trend that I've been recording with. It's uh, it, it, it's again. I mentioned this in the solo episode when you were on your break. Um, familicide it just seems to be something that I'm noticing more and more of. And it seems to be that it's always been there and I'm just, you know. Well, yeah, you're paying attention now. I'm just seeing it more now. Yeah. Um, do you think anything else could have happened that night? Like, what What do you think, um, what do you think actually happened? Because I, I feel like, even though the evidence may not suggest it, I feel like the, the family probably was awake like I, I, I don't know. I, that doesn't make sense for me, for the f nobody to wake up and them to be in their beds. And I, I feel like they were either placed there or and moved there, or they were all shot in a row or something. Yeah. But I, I don't know. But it, that's the whole thing. I mean, like we. I don't believe like in the said. demons. I don't believe in any of that. I think. Um, no, no, I don't believe it was a mob hit. I don't believe there was any demonic possession that had had the whole thing going on. I think it was, uh, if, it, if, if nobody woke up, then there had to have been more than one killer. And that's just looking at it logically. If it was just Butch, yeah, they had to have been moved, but I, I don't know if there was a lot of blood evidence throughout the house. Yeah, I know. So that's the but one that, thing we don't know. Lack of evidence. I mean, I, I don't know, but, Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense to me, you know? And I, I refuse to believe in anything um, illogical. Right, so. and that's why I wanted to talk about it, because it was, be, it was, it it's still kind of not unsolved. It's, it's, it's solved in a way because this guy confessed to doing yeah. it. Yeah, I think, I think his, he's in prison, I, but. I think his confession is the most honest one, the, the, the him about, his initial confession? Yeah, him saying how about, he uh, couldn't stop once he started. Yeah. That's fair to assume. And that's all we can really do because, like we said, he's the only witness and he's unfortunately the most unreliable witness given his history. Yeah, so like the official label they put on him is antisocial personality disorder. And... um Mm -hmm. That kind of adds to the credence that, you know, he was any, unable to stop himself. The devil made me he, do he, it. Well, well, yeah, sort of. He probably completely dissociate, uh, dis dissociated. Right. And when you dissociate, it's almost like you're literally watching. You have no control over your... A movie. Yeah, it's like you're watching a movie or even you're outside of your body, some people say. Um, it's a surreal experience. I've, I've dissociated uh, a couple times and it's, for me, it's like, uh, it's like I'm looking at a screen. It's kind of like, um, like in that movie, get out, you know, when he's in the sunken place, mm -hmm. it's like, it's strange. It's just a feeling of unreality and, and nothing seems real. And, um, people who are experiencing traumatic events tend to dissociate people who are doing 
things that maybe they can't really cope with as they're doing it, like, you know, killing their entire family. Some Somebody going through that might dissociate. Absolutely. I think it would be easy for an undiagnosed, someone with an undiagnosed underlying mental disorder to, you know, especially one who's abusing drugs. Yeah, everything. Snap and go over the edge and, and totally dissociate like that and with a traumatic event everything is said about his early life said it could be very possible and easy to do so yeah everything is said about his early life kind of leads to that as well just the idea that he he started uh a reliance on alcohol early on which very quickly led to hard drugs and heroin and it just kind of yeah he probably at a young age just did not get the help he needed and um they thought they could fix it through money and jobs and boats that he had no appreciation for. Sad story. Yeah, it's a very sad story, and we can only look at what's available to us. From there, we can only speculate as to what chain of events actually unfolded on November 13th, 1974. But one thing is certain, in less than 12 hours, An entire family was home, safe, in bed, until they weren't. And that's pretty much it. Yeah, terrible. And uh, it's not the first case that we covered here. No, with the local case, the local state case, Mm -hmm. Connor and Brindley Snyder, uh, of course, Chris Watts, and um, I, I, I... kind of put scott peterson in there only because yeah he ended i mean he before his, he, he had an unborn his child but um if it wasn't you know, then it was a small family yeah if it, it was if it wasn't then then it would have been a few years later probably yeah um and it probably won't be the last case we cover like this either probably not unfortunately no well yeah, well, thank you t- for telling me that uh, that tragic, tragic tale, Joe. I appreciate that. And I hope everybody else enjoyed that, too. Thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. Thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for all the support. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so at adarktale.com. Email us there. You can reach out on Twitter at adarktalepod is our handle. I'm at Joe underscore the host if you want to bother me personally. And uh, it's very easy to find me, so I'm not going to plug mine. And uh, only real detectives can find me. There you go. (laughs) It's out there. You know it's out there. If you really want to come find it. Okay, until next time, everybody, stay safe. Be safe. Yeah, you know why? Because evil 